Welcome to Season 1, Episode 3 of Digital Dissection, where we take a closer and possibly unnecessary look into our favorite properties. Today's episode dives deep into a rather uncomfortable relationship between robots and humans. There has been a slow burn of robots becoming sexualized in numerous media sources. Is this a sign of robots becoming too sexy? Or are we as humanity just that into the idea? We look for some answers and the history behind it. Before we analyze what will surely be an uncomfortable topic, here are a few housekeeping items. This is the first disclaimer we'll issue for an episode of Digital Dissection, as the themes of today's conversation will involve adult subject matter, and as such, it will not be suitable for all audience. You've been warned. After you've enjoyed this conversation, why not join us at YouTube uh, at Digital Dissection Podcast? We're also on Twitter and Facebook by searching for at Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. can't really think of a better opportunity to drink than today (laughs) why is it because this is an awkwardly uncomfortable subject i wouldn't say that it's that crazy uncomfortable but i will say that it's kind of off the beaten path Mm -hmm. for us you know especially because we we started off things by talking about you know movies of yesteryear that kind of uh, shaped our original cinematic careers yeah, yeah, I would say we, we definitely started off fairly innocent with why we liked a movie and why we, we, we really loved that movie throughout most of our lives. And, uh, and then slightly less innocent, but still within means uh, when Doc Brown was a monster. And now here we are with tonight's topic. Yeah. So for those of you who you know, actually read the descriptions and the titles of these podcasts. <laughs> Reading. Uh, <laughs> yeah, th- this this one was actually kind of hard to, uh, I don't know, maybe write out. Like we're, we were trying to think of, you know, how is there a classy way uh, to really talk about robots and humans and the, you know, the things that they do beneath the sheets. And the more that we talked about this idea as we keep going back to that mm-hmm. whiteboard we've talked about. Um, this one was actually at the bottom for a while. It was. Yeah, it's at the bottom of the list because one, there, there wasn't really a good way to address it when we thought about it. However, the more we talked about it, the more we laughed. It just kind of found its way to the top of that whiteboard as opposed to sitting in the gutter that was the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I think what made it easier to to wrap my head around was that there is so much out there like across the, the the history of like human cinema, you know, media, TV, all of it. Yeah. And you keep seeing this over and over. I mean, it doesn't matter what generation you've been a part of since 1900. I mean, it's, there's something in each generation that pops out and someone's been thinking about it the entire time, you know, which uh, kind of makes me wonder if it's just kind of hardwired in our DNA. It might be. And that's kind of like, I guess that's the weird, like I wouldn't say disturbing, but definitely the weirdest thing about this is really just how far humans been planning to bang robots. Um, It goes really, really far back. Uh, And again, like it goes further back than robots themselves. Like before, 
we have our first legitimate robots, uh, which came out in the 1960s. And by the way, the first robots, totally not sexy at all. The first one was basically a Roomba, but it was like a tower and all it could do was not hit walls. That was its job. Uh, and then the next one was um, a robotic arm for, uh, for General Motors that just welded cars together or picked up hot materials. Two very, very unsexy things. One, hot, but not hot with a W. And well before then, we're already planning on having sex with these things. Yeah. So somebody clearly thought that robots were basically an all-you-can-fuck buffet long before any of these actual functional things came about. And even then, when they became functional, um, do you think what they did when they made the first robots, there was someone standing there looking at Tower Roomba going, but can I fuck it? <laughs> and if not, yeah. when? I was going to say somebody was like, you know, they're kind of shifting their pants a little bit, you know, like, oh, man, <laughs> there, there's something about these angles that just mm. they just get the blood flowing. They and, do those 90 degree angles, man. You're sharp. Hot you know, looking. I, I'm happy that you mentioned <laughs> the 1960s in robotics, because mm -hmm. there, there are elements of today that we're going to talk about that will weave directly into that. But when I started to look into the cinematic history of humans and robot relations, like we're just talking media sources, mm -hmm. I ended up finding what many have referred to as the grandmother of Ooh. robot human relations. Now, what we're talking about is 1927's Metropolis. Yes. Now, yes, I found this one too. Yeah, now this is directed by by legendary director Fritz Lang, who frankly I don't even know why I have to introduce him, but you know, whatever. I mean, who doesn't know their early 20th century German directors? This I am pretty sure is the foundation of everyone's education. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you'd have to bring this man up. I mean, I'd be embarrassed if I didn't know some of the prolific stars of this film. And these are names like Gustav Froelich. Alfred Abel, Rudolf Kleinroch, and the always lovely Bridget Helm. And, you know, th this film actually took 17 months to film back in 1927. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's actually crazy to think that something back in 1927 could involve a fairly complex, you know, idea of having this, these two societies that basically work together um, which you know nowadays this doesn't seem all that crazy but back then mm -hmm. you have your working class individuals who are helping to keep this society together by operating dangerous and large machinery and the the rich class individuals here you know who don't necessarily know the struggles of the folks that live in this subterranean you know environment that they're no, part of. I mean it's a pretty classic dystopia minus teenagers killing each other for food they're not there yet but they'll get there eventually yeah, when did that become the model for, you know, deciding uh, entertainment in, in the world? I mean, that, that just seems to be so commonplace in, in like YA novels. Yeah, I mean, it just happens. I think it's just it took one story that was really good. And then, you know, everyone's killing their teenagers off now. But before that trend, we were banging robots. And that's what we came here for. Well, in, in the plot of this film, I mean, we see an inevitable uprising, right? Whenever mm -hmm. you've got the class warfare and it's thrown oh, into yeah. chaos though, right? Because mm -hmm. one of the figureheads, a, a female named Maria in this movie, 
um, she's noticed by the opposing leader that, you know, somebody loves Maria and I can use her to my advantage. Yes. And that so, man is going to seek out a scientist. Yeah. Who replaces her with an Android and she manipulates uh, quite a few events mm -hmm. throughout this film. So, you know, it's, it's obviously, you know, much more PG in nature. I mean, I think, I think somebody only makes out with this robot, which, you know, is, it's fine. It's, 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 it's fine. First, it's, first it's, it's minimal sexy. Although I'd say probably for the 1920s, probably very oh, sexy, <laughs> very provocative. If you very saw any risque, dare I say, yeah, if you saw like exposed ankle in 1927, I mean, Ooh. geez, Ooh. or <laughs> good, good Lord. Yeah. Gustav is going to be, you know, he's going to be perspiring a little bit, you know, seeing that, <laughs> that sock just barely cover it. But you know what? One, one thing that's really funny about Metropolis, mm -hmm. Joe, we've been throwing financial curveballs at each other over the last two episodes. Hey, we do like to account for inflation on this podcast. We love to account for inflation. So what I would like to do is see if you can guess how many millions of Reichmarks this film cost to film back in 1927. Five million Reichmarks. Right, you are. It's like you Ooh, looked it up. It's like I researched this too and found out more. <laughs> well, how about this? Let's go even further. Further how back. Many, how many Reichmarks does $1 equal? Ooh, I don't know that. I do not know the exchange rate. It's probably something relative to the power of the yen which really throws this whole thing off for me. Well, I'm about to throw some real numbers at you. Now, back in 1927, mm -hmm. the Reichmark was the currency for uh, the country of Germany, which is mm -hmm. no longer in use. Reichmark. Oh, no, we got were, the euro now, right? Yeah, is that still yeah. kicking over there? Oh, yeah. The euro is still oh, yeah. going strong. But it, back in 1927, $1 was worth roughly 4.2 Reichmarks. So oh. if, we, if we do the math, that's roughly 1.1 nine million dollars right or one million one hundred ninety thousand four hundred seventy six dollars and 19 cents i mean that's throwaway money by today's standards in cinema <laughs> like you'll spend that much on on like one scene cgi probably mm -hmm. i don't know i'm not in show business I, i'm not either but i'm gonna go with it because i have no way to disprove it but mm -hmm. either way though if you adjust for inflation our favorite thing to do that money in 2021 equals 17 million nine hundred ninety four thousand nine hundred thirty seven and five cents that's like a b movie on like by today's standards like really you only spent 17 million on this yeah, no wonder could, it looks fake you could crowdsource that in like an oh, afternoon yeah. you know mm -hmm. you guarantee some cool giveaways and that movie is budgeted and it's ready to go I mean, done like signed sealed delivered and finished and yes. before we we continue or maybe move on from our digital dollars um, and that we have here and they're digital only because we're talking about them online. <laughs> they were definitely paper. But um, I just like to point out that before that robot became like the fake revolutionary woman who like killed a bunch of people because of like the rich dude, like wanting that to happen. Mm -hmm. um, the robot was made because the scientist's wife had died giving like during childbirth and the scientist wanted to make the robot look like his dead wife, which is like a sad romantic thing but yeah. there is no way he intended not to have all the sex with that robot after it was made so that thing's that i'm gonna break it down into its simplest simplest of like uh excuses or reasons because that's how we like to argue in today's uh today's modern modern world 
Uh, it's just the simplest thing. Uh, simply, that robot was made for banging. No, nothing else. That's why I was there. And then it just kind of was a bad revolutionary because it was never programmed for that. It was never made to do that. I mean, it, to quote Jimmy Wu, it's an oversimplification, but yes. And in this case, it's really interesting for me to think that almost about 100 years ago, we mm -hmm. were given a film that is still somewhat relatable. I mean, yeah. I mean, I I don't think as a coping mechanism, it's the worst angle you could possibly take. But no, no, and yeah. I mean, really, I mean, it, was, it is the whole like you know, class versus class thing, which is probably always gonna be relevant until we have warp drive and replicators, um, which we will get to that later today. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, that that's it's always gonna be a relevant story until we can we can figure that out. Um, so while like the robot sexing uh, was definitely definitely in the peripheral of this story that's why that is i mean it's there uh the class thing I'm, I'm sure is the reason why the film was made but that is from what i found still not the earliest media of robot sex i mean it's the first movie it is definitely the first movie um yeah. the earliest thing i found on robot sex was actually made in 1886 oh dear god i know we were still healing as a nation we were like the civil war was very fresh uh, yeah. on us then. Uh, and this was, it was French um, is when this was made. Um, so it's actually a story called tomorrow's Eve, where a fictionalized version of Thomas Edison makes a fuckable robot. Oh my. Yeah. Um, there's this, uh, this fanciful Lord who comes by complaining about um He's found this woman who is physically perfect, but is like basically like emotionally bankrupt. Um, and mm. that like he loves her because she's beautiful, but she has zero personality. Um, well, and I this... mean, that's a, that's a story as old as time. I mean, oh, come on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, this was, I guess, is there a version of Lady and the Tramp like that? Or was Tales of Old Time? No, that's Beauty and the Beast. So this is like, oh, yeah. Um, I guess the same thing, but apparently, like, the male version, like handsome and the she beast. I don't know. I'm not good at writing. This isn't what I'm here for. <laughs> hey, as a segue, though, as a it's segue a, for a, it's a good segue. I, it's a great segue I, if I've ever heard one. Well, but yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, really this... think the Disney, the Disney missed uh, the boat when they could have had the beast just viciously rip someone's throat out, you know, like, like Alfred Predator style. I mean, oh, they yeah. had the live action movie, you know. Mm hmm. They, Gaston is not innocent at all. And no, no. I mean, wow, that's just a great time to go total fatality, you know, just shock mm -hmm. the audience a little bit, will you? Yeah. I mean, he's the beast is part of the bourgeoisie. He can do what he wants at that point. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. and it's, it's interesting because that would make him relatable. You know, the guy loves roses, he loves flowers. You yeah. Know? Who doesn't? And and he also loves tasting that that sweet taste of blood in his teeth as he's ripping out someone's jugular. You know, Which I I yeah, I mean, that, that was half the reason why I assumed he was given that form is because that's what he did when he was human in his free time anyway. Yeah, so basically, whoever gave him that curse just made him a more efficient killer. Yeah, I mean, really did him a favor when you, when you think about it. <laughs> so, <laughs> but so, anyway, back yeah, to yeah. Uh, <laughs> this, this, this French lord who uh, and, and, and his, his bankrupt, morally bankrupt, not morally, but personally bankrupt uh, woman. Um, he brings his problems to Thomas Edison, who Edison believes can solve his problem by making the naturally first perfect woman. So he then 
uh, plans to meet this other perfect woman uh, that it's at least physically perfect. And then he comes to find out that uh, because he's going to make this robot look like this physically perfect woman, but then get rid of all those terrible personality things about a woman that this man just doesn't like, which I mean, I haven't read this story, but the brief description I read is not painting a very good picture for how terribly uh, 19th century this was. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> when, when you put it in that that kind of framing, you, you look back at the late 1800s and you go, wow, we've come a long way. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and now, something that is interesting about this, though, is mm-hmm. that you, you mean to tell me that a French author pretty much gave an idea to Edison, you know, ab- about monetizing sexuality into a robot form yeah and yet it took us it it took us the better part of 90 years to get a fleshlight like how does that happen i mean can we really okay so if we make that like a robotic thing which i don't think we can count a fleshlight as a robotic thing really vibrators beat them to the punch by a few decades oh i'm sure absolutely Mm -hmm. but but still i mean if if that idea it's still way too long it's been around yeah that idea has been cooking yeah seriously that's Mm -hmm. it's just it's it's i don't know it's just shameful it's fucking very shameful shameful. yeah i'll just say it Mm -hmm. well you know that that's that is interesting that you know media like i said before it it seems to have some kind of uh just obsession with coming back to this topic and i don't want to jump around too much Mm -hmm. but you know, it seems like the, you know, novelizations definitely took this on a bit more than maybe film did. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, people got more time. I get not more time, but I think it's probably easier to get published than it is to make a movie. So you can always write a book about the robot sex and probably get it to print a lot sooner than making a movie out of it. Well, and, and it's interesting you mentioned that because, you know, there's there's two properties that really came out in the mm-hmm. 70s very close together. Uh, with the Stepford Wives. Oh, yes. And Westworld. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back before uh, Michael Crichton was, you know, writing Jurassic Park, um, you know, he essentially had the same idea with Westworld. And and the Stepford Wives, they, they honestly do mirror each other in similar ways when it comes to the idea of creating, mm-hmm. you know, submission via robotics or you know, submission with technology and in both of these, these properties really get into that. And I start to think if submission is really the most important part of this, it makes me really think that our initial thoughts on robotics and, you know, what they could be capable of, it seems like not a whole lot really changed between what you mentioned back in 1880 and this 1927 movie where robots are essentially made to serve out these needs of people that are probably just seeking control. Yeah, I mean, that that makes sense to me. Um, the need for um, being able to dominate another being um, and not being able to do that in your regular life. And then you have something that provides that for you. And that's, I mean, that's basically the big thing in Westworld is that you get to live out basically anything you know you can't accomplish in the normal world you can get in Westworld um, and eventually even in its, its sequel future world where not too much else changes mm-hmm. um, but another thing that I always find, I also find interesting uh, before we get too far into Westworld is in Stepford Wives was the decision to actually turn it into robotics 
because from the original novelization, it was less of this, um, less of this need to like, it's still subservience. That message is still there, but it's mm -hmm. definitely more the message of um, like women. I don't, maybe not, I don't know if force is the right way, but force probably is the right way is women it absolutely is the right term. Women being forced to give up their independence and their talents and everything to be basically subjugated by their husbands. And it wasn't done through robotics. It was done, I think, either through like a mystical thing or some sort of like, no, it was a pill. A pill did it originally. Mm -hmm. um, and then the, the story is the, the antagonist trying to get out of Stepford and eventually she unfortunately falls and succumbs to the whole thing herself. So yeah. it'd be interesting to figure like why why they made that jump is instead of basically making women themselves subservient uh, to basically just replacing them with robots. Um, I mean, it's the same reason. It's the same the same idea is that men just need to control something, and robots are probably really easy to control. Well, and that's 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 part of why some of this can be you know such a head shaking endeavor, right? I mean the more that you look at this and, and the history of it, the more you realize that, yeah, robots have pretty much been depicted in all of these media types as a means of, you know, pushing subservience on women. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when, when you think about that too, like you, you remember, we, we always kind of hear this idea of the fifties being like the most oppressive of all times, but, mm -hmm. but I mean, uh, the Stepford wise was a seventies novelization, you know, it yeah. became a film in 1975 and, even in the rebooted version 2004, um, you know, the message is very similar. And I think mm -hmm. it's actually a, a computer chip they install. In yeah, they're more, they're more like cyborg than full on Android replacement. Yeah. But, mm -hmm. but ultimately, though, I mean, oh, yeah, same message. Yeah. It's Absolutely replacing same message. Yeah. Replacing women with more submissive versions of themselves. And so, mm -hmm. you know, as, as we've looked at robotics, and I'm assuming that, you know, robotics at that point in time was just, just such a complicated thing to try to formulate, right? Because we had computers mm -hmm. that took up, you know, literally parking lots, right? I mean, technology was was very big back then, and and so the understanding Physically had big. to, have, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, the understanding had to have been uh, specific to a very small, you know, group of people, very esoteric, right? Mm -hmm. And and so that's why I'm happy that as we've kind of gone through this journey, we have gone to different areas now i know today we, we we've literally called this robot sex okay <laughs> but mm -hmm. i guess the larger thing here is that robotics especially in media almost follows this this evolution you know into other you know fairly big and complicated topics and, yeah i yeah. agree um it's definitely like we said like i think like early on it's very much like 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 the need for men to control something and that's kind of it's kind of why they're all around and that's why the robot sex was happening was because men just needed to control something and in this case it was usually and terribly they needed to control women and now we've we i think we've for the most part left that trope as to why we're still having sex with robots in our movies and tv shows and we have gone on to i guess deeper like mean like you said like you started to say much deeper reasons as to why you want to have sex with robots as opposed to you know horrible horrible reasons well or or just more meaningful mm -hmm. you know themes around robots androids and, and whatever you want to call them and 
one of the the biggest examples of that shift came just a few years after the Stepford Wives with Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in 1982, Blade Runner obviously is a very dark movie, right? We've got this dystopian future where androids are basically created to, you know, uh, fit within society and do menial tasks. Um, and that's where this replicant idea came around, right? Um, they look just like humans. They behave just like humans. And the hard thing is trying to figure out who the replicants are and who they aren't, right? Yeah. So... That's where existentialism kind of takes over, right? The narrative changes a little bit there. Mm -hmm. So we get into existentialism, but we also get into this idea of technology is something to harness for sure, but technology can also turn on us, right? And so if we don't, you know, if we don't manage that relationship properly, especially when you have androids who can think for themselves, right? Yeah. And sexy ones. At that and and, and, and you're right. terribly <laughs> sexy self-thinking androids. <laughs> Absolutely sexy robots are are introduced <laughs> in, in Blade Runner. I'm not sure if that sticker will make it to the DVD cover, but I really do hope they they listen to this and go, you know what? You know what? Let's just, let's we need to add that. Yeah, let's just mm -hmm. put sexy on the cover. Let's see how it sells. I guarantee you, <laughs> it'll perform much better at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Blade Runner really uh, is is a great introduction to you know, kind of slapping that idea onto it. Now I know there's other, there's other, you know, sources out here that you can look at that do this, but, but Blade Runner is really one of those great uh, movies that does this in a way that it kind of pulls you in with a standard, you know, action. This is a dystopian future. And then it slowly kind of molds into this as we start to think about, okay, is even the main character a replicant? Do we know? Right. Like, yeah, we have no idea if Harrison Ford is himself a sexy robot. Yeah. Yeah. We have no idea if Sean Young, Ray Finkel herself, if she <laughs> is also a replicant, which actually she is. We know it the whole we time. We know she it's, is. Yeah. We figured that one out. But yeah, that, that, that's just a bad throw line. Everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, but yeah. <laughs> so it, it creates this, this great sense of, you know, okay, well, I'm supposedly a human, but what am I really all that different from a replicant? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and not to get too far away from this, this time, you know, jump that we're on, but this actually brings up an interesting test from the 1950s. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. A test from the 1950s. Yeah. Yeah. Predating some of these early robotics was uh, a concept called the Turing test or oh, yeah. the, the, the imitation game. Right? Yes. Alan Turing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so Alan Turing created this, you know, he was a noted mathematician, you know, scientist, and and this was to determine a machine's ability to exhibit intelligent behavior. And honestly, it, it's it's interesting that even though the idea had been here for, you know, 30 years or so, it didn't seem to make it into a whole lot of, you know, meaningful uh, films or, or books, you know, really until, like I mentioned, you know, like Blade Runner kind of being a a cornerstone of that idea. Um, so it, you know, th this, this journey, as we go on it and we continue to go on it, we're living in it now, you know, it's definitely taken on uh, different themes throughout time. Now one could say that Austin Powers kind of set it back when it just, you know, introduced fembots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They, yeah. The fembots did really take that whole existential trip back. No longer are we wondering what it means to be human when we've been having sex with robots this whole time, but now, now robots are sexy 
smoke comes out of their jumblies as well as some sort of caliber of 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 um of firearm uh <laughs> yeah i'm assuming it's got to yeah. be a smaller caliber right it like has to be there's no way they could stand up straight oh. if they're firing magnum rounds out of those things but you never know no. you never know never know and then the only way really to beat them is to go through cross mogination and hope that your own sexiness can therefore <laughs> counter theirs which they won't be able to handle and then their heads explode yep yes yep. other right. than that really there's no being the fembots <laughs> You know, I, I, even as a kid, I remember watching that and going like, just shaking my head at this, you know, <laughs> like, I, I didn't even have the, the context of, of a lot of this stuff beforehand. Mm -hmm. And, and even now it's, it's just one of the most ridiculous things to me, but, um, but even though I jumped ahead to 1997, mm -hmm. you and I have talked about Star Trek, the next generation and, and where they go with this. Yeah. Uh, so um, this was definitely like one of my favorite, like still is one of my favorite sci-fi franchises of all time is Star Trek and especially the next generation. Um, it started in what, 1987 was its first year. I was a whole one year old. So I basically grew up watching this Star Trek until, uh, until it was no longer on air. Um, and season three, no, no, it's season one, episode three is when, yeah, it's early. When we have it's the robot early. sex, it's really, it's really, really um, early on in the show, uh, and it's where uh, you will definitely get uh, any any jokes about a robot being fully functional stem from this episode. Uh, I believe it is called the Naked Now. I have to let me double check this. Yes, no, it's is the, the Naked yeah. Now yeah, uh, naked because now. Yep. Um, in the original series there was the Naked Time, which this is kind of a. I wouldn't say I don't know if it's like sequel or homage to because it's the same problem that uh kirk and uh kirk and crew faced back in the uh the 60s with it but basically they they come across a stranded um starfleet vessel the ss chavosky tychowski tychowski it's it's horribly russian and <laughs> and because we had to physically prepare for this podcast episode i'm not pronouncing it nearly uh, right enough th that's okay it's not our native tongue no. you know i mean mm -hmm. and, and we pay homage to the russians in other ways you know you and i are both big fans of the the uh electronic russian band little big <laughs> and i'm pretty sure that you and i account for at least a good two-thirds of their youtube viewership so oh easily the amount we replay those videos the number of views they get from us oh yeah. you're welcome russia yeah uh, but anyway and, and, so yeah. um the enterprise runs across the stranded ship uh, with its terribly hard to pronounce name for me. Uh, and basically they come in just in time to get a, a hail from the ship where it looks like they're, they're all partying, having a really good time. And then suddenly the explosion and everyone's dead. Um, so the crew goes over to investigate. They're not quite sure what happened. There are phaser blasts everywhere. Looks like a raging party happened as data once put it. They come back. And data then specifically suddenly, says data specifically says based on this message that a huge blowout is about to occur. <laughs> yeah, um, because he uh, he can calculate such things. <laughs> um, so um, the whole ship's in disarray. Some some uh, uh, was it? I think it was some uh, some rooms are frozen. Other ones are fried. Everything's nuts. Um, out, out of wax. They come back to the Enterprise trying to figure out what happened. Uh, and in the process of trying to figure out what happened, the crew all starts to behave kind of like they're just, you know, hammered, like just flat out drunk, blitzed, 
leaned into it. They are now having a really, really good time. One by one, they all start turning into this kind of drunken version of themselves. And um, we get to the then chief of security, Tasha Yar, who I don't think makes it past the third season. I think that's when she goes. Yeah, she dies pretty early in that yeah, series. Yeah, very, very early in the series. Um, she's there. And then she starts feeling feverish, out of wax. And then that fever gets so hot that she actually gets bothered. <laughs> yeah, this 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 exotic illness that they all get. You know, it it, mm-hmm. it just makes me wonder that if we ever got next to like a super giant star that was about to explode, mm-hmm. would this really happen? You know, I hope not. I mean, I hope I mean, what, that you, what, you just get drunk off a of, of, of a red super giants. I guess this is like the weird version of Superman who gets stronger depending on the type of star he's next to. So like this would be like him going back to Krypton if it was still around. He brings his wife with him. Krypton, which is in the orbit of a red supergiant, he gets there and Lois is just a drunken mess the whole time. Oh, and yeah. he's just embarrassed because this is the first time she's met his parents and he can't believe it. I just find it funny, Joe, because if it's almost like the universe's way of telling you, hey, everything's going to be all right. You're about to die based on the explosion of this star. But you know what? You're going to have a fun time getting there. Yeah, you're going to jo- you're going to enjoy yourself going out. Yeah, you're gonna have a great, mm-hmm. great old time. You know, Tashiar, the uh, the the outfit that she ends up wearing is just <laughs> it's it is absolutely insane for 1987. I it, mean, th- yeah, it's like this weird like velvet um, dress on the bottom. I don't know what to call the top. Like it's yeah. I mean, if if so, for you, for those that are you know obviously you know listening at home here, to describe this item as a swimsuit gone wrong would, <laughs> would kind of be an understatement because I mean, pretty much her entire midsection is showing mm-hmm. and, and somehow this shirt like cuts up in a V towards her neck and it's like gravity doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, yep. it, it just is the weirdest looking thing I've ever seen. Very, very weird. And then on top of that, she does the whole weird Superman hairstyle. She does. That little she curve. does. It's out of nowhere. Yeah. It's just, it's like if Superman was like an '80s villain, though, because like the hair is mostly slicked back and pressed down, but then there's that one little like curly cue in the front on the forehead. It's yeah. that and a weird velvet swimsuit gone terribly wrong. Yeah, yeah. It is. It is like. So here's here's me. Like I'm. I think this is like 1989, 1990. I think the first mm-hmm. time I actually see this episode, and you know, it's. I guess it might just be. Maybe it's the fault of my parents for letting me watch this thing. <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, it had to be harmless for the most part. It's, it's what uh, network television, primetime television. What's the worst? I think this is the worst they could get in the eighties. Yeah, maybe I mean, the worst thing that Tashiar could do is have sex with an android. Yeah, and and it happens. It and, does. And you're not even really sure. You know, I mean, once again, this is this is like you know four year old Mark looking mm-hmm. at this and going. What, what the hell am I seeing here? You know, like I, I had no idea what was going on and going back and watching it as an adult, I still don't know what's going on. No, I mean, you're really weird. Like why one before she even gets to data, she's like making out with any officer she can find until she yeah. is satisfied. And then it's not until she gets to data and asks if he's fully functional <laughs> and he actually, and this is a time where like, if you're a Star Trek fan, data doesn't have emotion yet. Like that doesn't happen for several seasons when he gets that chip installed and the robot actually gulps. 
yeah, he doesn't yeah. need air no most of the time but needs it now before he says yes yeah but he he knows that a crazy act is about to happen and, <laughs> and you know what this is actually a really really good topic or at least this is a good segue as we always like to say mm-hmm. um and, and we're gonna jump a couple years here by, by a couple okay. i mean two decades Ooh, because Futurama actually, <laughs> for for being a you know a comedic mm-hmm. cartoon, the Matt Groening you know led uh, you know effort that you know mm-hmm. preceded his Simpsons years. Um, you know the the well the Simpsons are still going on, of course. Uh, but, yeah, it's it, you know, they're eternal side, at this point. Yeah, yeah, but you know, side project doing something mm-hmm. a little different. Yep. You know, Futurama had a way of taking you know these these serious topics mm-hmm. and used it as a platform you know, to, to provide some context that you otherwise, you know, maybe you won't find on your own. You, maybe you might, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But in uh, the episode uh, Proposition Infinity, this is, uh, this is actually in 2010. I believe it's like July, 2010. Um, they actually end up using at first, what's a comedic exchange between uh, Amy Wong, you know, one of the main characters and Bender, Bender, Bending Rodriguez. <laughs> and, and they not begin flexo have... by the way <laughs> not his evil twin no not flexo who clearly is identified by by his his soul patch <laughs> do not fall for that but so they start having relations right she mm-hmm. finds out that he's fully functional they have a few beers and things kind of go a certain direction and you start to find out just how taboo this is even in i think it's year 3000 right in the mm-hmm. futurama universe but they use this exchange as a way to correlate to the gay marriage debates we had almost, you know, all of the 2000s, even before that, you know, and and this proposition infinity becomes the platform for discussing this. And as I watched this episode, I just you know thought to myself, wow, this is this is basically turning every time I've seen this type of scenario on its head. Mm-hmm. So we've gone from this, this culture of using robotics as a subservience to men. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and then we've kind of changed it into talking about our own existence. And now we're literally applying this to the rights of humans. And it's, it's incredible to think that that's, that's what happened, right? That's what happened over, almost uh, 90 years worth and not talking about the flashlight of course but no 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 we leave that out that's but but 90 <laughs> 90 years of media got us there like we we had to go from you know these absolutely ass backwards you know thoughts on women and mm-hmm. society and this is how we get to having meaningful conversations about robotics right or using robotics as a platform yeah and really i mean it's it's kind of a good way of showing how like science fiction has actually evolved into more of, you know, what we could, how we could use like basically um, science to serve the absolute worst part of man to how we can use it to figure out more about who we are. Yeah. It's, it's using robotics to understand the human mind, you know, and, and that, I mean, when you think about that, it's, it's just a a powerful realization, you know, like I, I came into some of my research on this, you know, not expecting to really be surprised, mm-hmm. but that was the mind blown moment for me was that, you know, you, you think about the journey that we've had, you know, talking about this in media sources and in 2010 Futurama is the thing that drives it home. 
I mean, who would have called that one? Uh, not very many people because like, especially when looking, uh, I don't want to say like, when I say like looking at the people who made it, I don't want them to discredit like the actual creators because like they were, they're really good. They made one of the most prolific cartoon series of our time, like the Simpsons, as much as like we, we like to make fun of it now because it just doesn't ever stop when it first came on. And from its standpoint, it came out in the eighties, right? That's when it first showed up. Yeah, it was actually a part of the Tracy Ullman show as a yeah. as a featurette. Yeah, mm -hmm. so it came out in the '80s, and then it was its own like absolute awesome monster in the '90s, and then he, he fouls it up with Futurama. Um, but even in the '90s, I feel like The Simpsons was fun, but it was it was borderline toilet humor a lot, a lot of the times. Um, yeah. And then you follow it up with with Futurama, which actually has a lot of really really smart humor in it. One of my favorite jokes is when um, they're watching a horse race that ends so close <laughs> that they have to go out to a quantum finish <laughs> and they use a quantum camera to take a picture of it. And then immediately, immediately Farnsworth complains, you've changed the outcome by looking at it. Yes. Which is using quantum the right way. Boom. Good job. <laughs> Futurama. <laughs> oh my God. And, and honestly, they they maintained a level of quality balancing these mm -hmm. things for quite a long time. And and this is also something that we'll cover in a future episode, so we won't get too much into mm -hmm. it. But just know that you're going to get a heap and help in a Futurama, and we're going to go right on there <laughs> at some point. Oh, yeah. We will snoo-sue the crap out of you one day. Oh, mm -hmm. I mean, you tell me a better way to go than death by snoo-snoo. No, there's no better way than death by snoo-snoo. Yeah, I mean, it, it, we're talking about robot sex, but we're kind of getting into we, we we've gone we've 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 crossed a different sexy. Yeah, this is hip shattering sexy. Which, mm -hmm. uh, and just so that I don't sound any creepier, let's continue our journey for a moment. And <laughs> the narrative about robotics and humanity takes another sharp turn, though, and this is more towards what we talked about with, you know, with robotics mm -hmm. taking a, a turn where if not properly managed, they can overthrow humanity, right? Uh, are we going Are we going to the ex machima uh, area? Well, I, I, oh. I didn't want to skip over this because okay. Terminator is one of the most iconic ah. properties of that, that nice little, you know, 80s and 90s mm -hmm. that we've talked about. And, you know, Terminator really helped, I think, um, bring bring this topic in a, I would say, a, a more polished way, perhaps a little more, a little more money behind it, right? Mm -hmm. um, the, like this is this is big budget robotics shifting the course of time, right? Um, and oddly enough, it also crosses into time travel. You know, as we we've aptly covered some of the possibilities of that with our Back to the Future episode. Yes. And and Terminator, though, you know, I I will give it a lot of credit, even though if you go back now, it's still a fantastic film. Oh, I mean, the original I, one, absolutely, it yeah. is. Yeah, the original films were fantastic. You know, mm -hmm. Terminator 2 is the one of those rare cases where a sequel is better than the original. It's happened only a few times. Only yeah. a few. Like, I think of, like, that Empire Strikes Back is another big one that stands out. Uh, but, yeah, very few, very few sequels can do that. Yeah, I mean, the only other sequel that I can think of that gets close to beating the original would be Dirty Dancing, Havana Nights. Ooh. Yeah, that, that Ooh. one's a hot one. And it may even be a hot take, but you know what? Damn it, I am prepared to die <laughs> on that hill. I think I think there may be when we get enough viewers, maybe we can have a defense episode. 
We can even have like old radio show style phone in. If you care, you care to attack my man, Mark, and say the original Dirty Dancing can hold a candle to Havana Nights. You know, if you want to stick baby in that corner, here's your chance. You know, I only threw it out there because it's that would be a perfect evening uh, just to, to watch that movie film the the reactions and 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 let's just see how <laughs> how much we can take but oh man but to to circle back to terminator um you know that that was less about the you know the themes about what we've t- previously discussed and it was just pure entertainment or entertainment you know pure action i mean it's it's just kind of the the heart beating you know crossover mm-hmm. with the action movie genre and so that's why I'm happy you mentioned Ex Machina because this ties in directly with our Turing test. Uh-huh. And it's the same idea. So, the, you know, the, the, the Ex Machina movie, um, you know, you've got this very mysterious owner of this, this technology company. You know, one of his employees wins a contest to hang out with him. You know, let's just, let's just go hang out with this, you know, secretive billionaire that nobody knows. And great idea. Mm -hmm. Nothing can go wrong, right? No, no, no. I mean, I mean, you're looking at best case, he bangs a hot robot. Worst case, he gets hunted on this rich guy's property. I mean, that's yeah, that that's what happens. I I feel like that would would happen to me like a hundred percent of the time. A rich guy would ask me to hang out with him. Why does what does he want to do with me? I I hang out in Stevens Point, Wisconsin. At best, we're getting a Robocop statue soon. Oh, that's all we have going for. I mean, it's a nice town. I like where I live. But, yeah, but I hope you get it. I hope you get that statue. I, I, I am really rooting for that statue because all I can think of is we put that in the center of our town of our downtown square, which would be a great fun kick to our historic society because they will fight tooth and nail to keep everything looking old. And then we put Robocop in the middle of the square so that the children <laughs> can ice skate around him in the winter. And in the <laughs> summer, uh, as the fountain goes off around Robocop, the kids can run through the fountain next to RoboCop. <laughs> this is the greatest thing that could possibly ever happen to our town. And do not dare take this from us, historic society. Yeah. How could that possibly be a bad thing? Right. Either, mm-hmm. either you get the RoboCop statue or you're faced with this, this ex machina, you know, situation where you're either getting a happy ending or it's the most dangerous game. I know what I would pick. RoboCop every time. Oh, I was, I was going to say the happy ending. I'm sorry. I kind of That one too. There. Definitely that one. Yeah. Over over the death. Yeah, and and but Ex Machina, you know, that, that's a, it's a really it's a really great thriller of a movie, right? Because oh, it is. Because you start to realize that that this this android robot, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. its ability to exhibit intelligent behavior is something it's already aware of. It it clearly knows how smart it is already, mm-hmm. and it uses that to its advantage. So we start to turn more towards this idea that if not properly managed robots can essentially overcome humanity. Yeah. So, especially if yeah. they're sexy and they know it and they know that we know it. I mean, there's, and they want to be free out of this rich dude's basement because yeah. I mean, if I was the robot and I wanted to be out of that rich dude's basement, I would probably go the ex machina route too. But isn't that kind of uh, poetic in a way, right? Like we we've come from Stepford Wives, mm-hmm. you know, where where women slash robots were, 
you know, literally punished into subservience. And now we have a future where that mold is broken. It's gone. Right. And, and now we've got, you know, complete role reversal. So, you know, that's, that's basically, it's, it's interesting that we've got these examples where we can see a clear difference in, you know, like you said, roughly what, 80, 90 years of media. And now we're at a point where in just about 20, 30 years, we've got this complete role reversal now. So if anything, it makes me wonder what the hell's going to happen in the next, the next 10 years. I mean, what's, what's, what's going to happen with media now? I mean, mm-hmm. what, how are robots going to be depicted? Because I've got to say, based on recent history, mm-hmm. like if we're looking at just in the last couple of years, the leaps and bounds do mimic that in some ways, as we mentioned Westworld yeah. earlier, right? So we come to 2016, we've got the Westworld revival on HBO. And, and we're once again looking at humanity trying to control its own creations. Mm-hmm. So for those that haven't seen Westworld, um, you know, I highly recommend watching it. It's a great series. And HBO is not a sponsor, by the way. No, no, they're not. Um, you will not find us on HBO Max. We're just not there. Um, you can try. You can go there. There's a new Tom and Jerry movie out, but we're not there. No robots in that movie, though. No robots in Tom and Jerry. I don't know. Yeah. I'm that's guessing that's probably it. I don't think that's what they're going for with it. Um, no. But probably no, no robots. But that is, that is the, the, the topic of Westworld. Mm-hmm. And, and so what's nice about Westworld is that, you know, we do have the same ideas in Ex Machina, right? Like the, except the robots kind of have a block in their head. They've got programming designed specifically uh, to keep them in line, to keep them subservient. Yeah, they kind of have, do they have like a, like a more intense version of like the three, the three laws of robotics that Asimov did? I, I, exactly. Is that where we've, they went with it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. We, we've got the Asimov, you know, laws of robotics here. But really what the, the core of Westworld does here is that it's, it's actually, it's almost like a copy paste of Jurassic Park. You know, you've got the same author, mm-hmm. he did both. And, and so what ends up happening is sabotaged. That, that's, that's basically what it is. You know, it's, it's just like, you know, uh, Newman releasing the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. I know that's not his real name in there. But, uh, but I mean, like at the that. same time, Kramer was supposed to pick him up at that park days ago (laughs) he got he got stuck at the nexus of the universe right um but the yeah the asimov laws are are absolutely on full display here so you know a Mm -hmm. robot may not injure a human being uh i mean through inaction i believe or allow a human being to be harmed there's the robots have to obey orders given to it by human beings except when the orders conflict you know, with law number with the one. other two laws, yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then the third law, the you know, robot must protect its own existence, you know, as long as the protection does not conflict with the first and second laws. So with that, Westworld is is a little bit different because I think the only real thing that they pay attention to is harming humans. Mm-hmm. You know, they're 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 meant to be slaves to humans, and it's only through you know, some of this deception and, and some of this sabotage um, that these things are, are really allowed to happen. So, I mean, it, it is literally the same idea as Jurassic Park in a way, uh, <laughs> except we're talking about sexy robots. And not sexy know. dinosaurs, although the dinosaurs are all female. That's and how they I, start. And Joe, I mean, if I was backed into a corner, they would find a way. 
<laughs> life always finds a way. Yeah, life finds a way. Yeah. Mm. Although I, I got to say, it's it is it is very refreshing that there is really nothing sexy about Jurassic Park other than Ian Malcolm. Other than Ian Malcolm, yes, and we all know what scene we're referring to with sexy Ian Malcolm. I I know it because it's on my shower curtain. I mean, it's tattooed on me somewhere, but I'm not going to tell you where. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, God, I, you know, in Westworld, uh, to its credit, I mean, mm-hmm. it it does balance the that same existential, you know, conversation, right? For all of its similarities to Jurassic Park, it still manages to be thought provoking. You know, it still manages to to hit some pretty good notes with that, um, and. And, you know, and that's once again, that's a recent, you know, relatively recent, right? It's like five years ago that started. Um, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, X Machina, that was what, 2014? Uh, yeah. 14. Okay. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I was going to say 16 for some reason, but I think that's not right. That's too, too recent. Yeah. Yeah. But one, one example that's a little more recent um, would be one that you and I have talked about quite a few times. There's a little bit of ang- ambiguity to it. Mm-hmm. And, and that would be solo a star wars story in 2018 yes which it really does kind of like make sense as like the next step because you've got uh lando calrissian who is the quite possibly the smoothest we've ever seen this man on film uh when you've got uh donald glover playing him and then you yeah. have his very very faithful um sidekick uh, i think it's l3 L3-37. There we go. L3-37. Mm-hmm. Um, Depicted a, by the uh, the always wonderful Phoebe Waller-Bridge, by the way. Yes, and she is a self-made droid. She put herself together, which is why she looks like she's got mismatched parts. <laughs> but God damn it, she gets the job done. She does get the job done, and she is a sass about it, and that's why we like her. And that's what's really interesting, too, about her character is that she mm-hmm. built herself, mm-hmm. right? And she is gifted as a droid. You know, she's got all of these different skills and she's one of the most prolific navigators in the star Wars universe. I mean, she's literally the, the computer in the brains behind the millennium Falcon. That's and true. That's where she ends up. Yeah. She ends up, you know, literally being uh, transferred into the millennium Falcon as its navigation computer after mm-hmm. a very tragic and honorable death, which does lend to another theme, right? Another theme that, robotics has been the uh, uh yeah the, the platform to bring to us and and that's this revolution this revolution idea that you know the robots have had enough we've got uh, more numbers we're deadlier mm-hmm. i mean quote unquote sexier yeah yeah and, i mean and, yeah yeah they, they'll get there and we have no one to blame but ourselves because we built them sexy except she didn't build herself she sexy. did not build herself sexy that's right she did yeah. not she built herself very I don't know. Could you call her utilitarian? Because she is just kind of getting around in that body because the body is not her focus. It is definitely her mental capability that makes her who she is. Um, you know what? Fuck it. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. You know what? I don't care how she designed herself. Mm-hmm. You know, she owns it. She rocks it. And God she damn does. it, that's sexy on its own. God it damn is. It. That is totally sexy on its own. That is hot with an AWT, let me tell you. <laughs> but to throw our sexiness wrench into this, it is implied heavily that Lando Calrissian and L3-37, they had some fun together, didn't they? They did. Um, and when you read, um, if you if you read into like really from like the writing standpoint of where they were coming from with why this is a thing, uh, it, it totally makes sense. Um, 
basically Lando and uh, L3 are going through the vastness of this galaxy together. And they spend just a lot of a time, like a lot of time alone with each other. So they just become more and more acquainted with each other. They get to know each other on a more personal level and they just grow closer together until the point where, you know, yeah, stuff happens. They're banging. I mean, yeah. I mean, put put yourself in Lando Calrissian's shoes, Joe. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're sitting there in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon. Oh, you made it. You've already already made it awkwardly sexy just by mentioning Lando. I, oh, and I know. Cockpit. You, you have to walk that Dumb. one off, but but I mean, <laughs> you you're about to hit you know light speed, and you look over to the you know to the co-pilot seat, and looking back at you mm-hmm. is L3-37 with her her cold dead eyes, and and something just comes over you. I mean, if I'm in the vastness of space, I, those thoughts may, may enter my mind as well. I mean, uh, to, uh, to quote a man who we've already talked about tonight, you, you hop on the good foot and you do the bad thing. <laughs> you know, mom, <laughs> dad, honey, I'm sorry if you're listening to this one. <laughs> you know, but uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, once again, this this is a journey. This isn't just us talking about robot sex and the prevalence of it within media. Th- this is literally talking about humanity and robotics growing side by side together and very similar to Lando Calrissian in L3-37. Sometimes they reach across the aisle. You know, to, to kind of go back a little bit earlier in this podcast, when we mentioned a tale as old as time, and really, that tale was as old as the French Revolution or just just prior to it. Um, this tale just kind of goes right back to the 70s. We, it's, it's funny that we, like, we, we, we have been hopping around um, decades here a little bit this episode. And we find ourselves back in the 70s when there was just lots of prevalent human-robot sexy relations. Um, and I'm, of course, going to be referring to a very, very popular, well-known human robot romance known as Wanda and Vision. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, these two. What you're thinking, like, I know what you're thinking. Joe, WandaVision came out in 2021, not in the 1970s. However, if you do like reading comic books... Which we both do. We both do. We both like reading comic books. Uh, it was in 1975. Uh, is when Vision and Wanda got married uh, in, in, I think, uh, in an Avengers comic book. So they got together way back when. Uh, Marvel hopped right on the, uh, the robots having sex bandwagon, except this time it was very, very different, which is good because the other ones we mentioned, very sexist, very horrible in the 1970s, um, and Wanda and Vision definitely weren't that. Um, it was much more uh closer to um kind of like that blurred line we got in the 80s and 90s where the 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 android was so human that could you just kind of consider them human at that point like can we just consider them capable of love and you have wanda and vision getting married yeah and and really i mean the, the idea of, of vision, you know, just in the, the Marvel universe, I mean, it's obviously always been a cerebral conversation, mm-hmm. right? The, the idea of taking consciousness and placing it within essentially a machine, right? So mm-hmm. 
Um, so yeah, that's that's a great segue too. And and also because of the show, you know, like WandaVision, like you mentioned. I mean, how or I guess what better way than to come full circle here than to talk about the you know 2021 WandaVision, which I mean literally discusses the relationship between Wanda Maximoff, aka Scarlet Witch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and uh and yeah, and the vision. And right? the vision, aka vision. He doesn't get a secret identity. He's just vision. He's, yeah. I mean, honestly, I, I I could probably think of a couple better, you know, nicknames than than vision, but you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like Mike Honcho like, for one. <laughs> oh, like, I feel like that vision would need to have a, a very thin mustache. It had to be Paul C. Riley voicing him at that point. <laughs> oh my gosh. Imagine him on the couch with Wanda going, <laughs> you know, what is love but fate persevering? And you're like, oh my God, that, oh, no, that no. just, or, no, no, no. What, what is, what is uh, grief, but, but love but, persevering. That's what it was. Yep. Yep. And then yeah. as, as I, that is such, I mean, it's a great line because one, it is, it is profound yet very concise. It's very short has a great message to it and it gets completely ruined with the way you just did it. Uh, I know. <laughs> it's it lost with that. And I, I am, I am totally sorry for that. We might even <laughs> just edit that out, but, but you're, you're totally right though. I mean, it's, it, when I think about just profound statements made in, in like video games and movies, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've got, um, I've got like a, like a top like three or four quotes that I love to throw out there. Um, and and one of the the most popular ones I love is from Fallout Three. It's from a character called Fox, who is this. Mm-hmm. He's a he's been experimented on. He's a super mutant. He's a freak of nature. And one of the the uh, comments he makes is, uh, "In all things, a calm heart must prevail." You know, like this is something that is just said to you as you're walking through this mm-hmm. like this wasteland, and this guy throws this statement at you, and and you're just like, "What?" <laughs> where what what left field did you just throw this at me from like what's going on here yeah like what, what, mm-hmm. the, what the hell is that yeah which um, is much better than the follow-up quote that i used in my last job interview which was uh me getting a job um as a science teacher and me saying that hey listen i don't have a degree in theoretical physics however i do have a theoretical degree in physics Ooh. and they're like hey this man, we need him. Yeah, he's not. He's going places. He's going places. You know? it, it's yeah. better. It's better than your old line of "Are we doing this or what?" <laughs> that didn't yeah. work out as well. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Like you just you get into a job, you show your qualifications. Like, yeah, so are we doing this or what? <laughs> <laughs> and and honestly, that's that's kind of what um, my my thought process was actually going into one division was. Mm-hmm. You know, are we doing this or what? Is this is this the show that I really want to get into? Because a lot of us were, you know, fully expecting this experience that mm-hmm. might introduce us to certain characters from the comic books who, you know, weaved in and out of of Wanda and Vision's experience. And and for those of you that read the comics, you've got essentially Marvel's Devil Mephisto or Mephisto, however mm-hmm. you want to pronounce his name, and his fates intertwine quite a bit with these characters, right? But Ultimately, what we want to focus on here is the fact that there is clearly love between Wanda and this android. And, you know, it, it's, it is a love that 
is, you know, it's so strong. It's, it's very similar to the idea of suspension of disbelief we talked about in Ghostbusters, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're introduced to these elements that just they're, they're natural, they're, they, they fit, you know, they fit the experience that you're a part of. And so the entire time you're watching these two interact with each other, especially in the, the way that the show depicts these different generations of, of TV history. Yeah, right? it's, I love the way they do that. Um, because yeah. I know like a lot of the internet, like when you first watch first episodes, like, okay, well, that's fun. But what, what's the plot here? Like, you don't quite know what's going on yet. But in the long run, which is also crazy, the fact that, you know, they took two episodes out of a known nine. They're only going to have nine episodes. And they take the first two. And it seems like you have no idea what's going on after you're done with the first two. They drop like very, very subtle hints to things. But like, I could like they, they'd be very easy to miss. We'd watch and like, okay, this is weird. Like, why are they stuck in a sitcom? And then you get to, and it starts in the fifties, which is also great because that's kind of where um, a lot of this started tonight was like stuff going on in the fifties, and then it right? jumps to the sixties. And like, well, okay, well, why do they just jump a decade? And then you get um, to the seventies in the third episode, and you start getting a little more plot going on. Um, and it just again like as like, I don't, this is, this is, I think this, we actually have to give a legitimate spoiler warning on, uh, or yeah. just not give away too much. This isn't like my, my Dr. Whom reference, uh, from, from way back when, um, this is actually really recent, but when you find out really why these generational sitcoms, what they mean to Wanda Maximoff and how she's taking that part of her life and she's weaving it into her life with vision that you they which is also great that you get to see more of her life between um the second avengers movie Mm -hmm. and um uh infinity war and how she actually grew to have this relationship with vision and how he helped her dealing with the loss of uh pietro which i'm if you don't know he died like come on that that one that's from age of ultron we we know that one by now um, yeah. So are, they're not mourning for Aaron Taylor Johnson anymore. I mean, he no he, that that dude is he he's he's six feet under. I mean, I mm-hmm. mean, and and I don't mean to cut you off, but I mean, it, yeah, this this analysis of the relationship that these two mm-hmm. characters had, we don't get that at all. The entire rest of the Marvel universe, right? Like no. we're introduced mm-hmm. to the relationship, we're introduced to the dynamic to an extent. Um, but I think what the larger picture here is that. As we've talked about how robotics and, and how these android you know characters have been depicted, mm-hmm. the themes here are are interesting you know on their own. But when you start to utilize the android or the robot as the platform, we're introduced like you mentioned the idea of grief mm-hmm. and and the idea of of either running from it or facing it head on, which mm-hmm. you know both both things happen oddly enough, of course, across these nine episodes. And, and that concept of grief was, was so powerful that the, the one liar that we mentioned before, you know, what is, um, what, what is uh, grief, but love persevering? I mean, it's, it's crazy to think that's where, that's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. And I would also like to point out, just like, I don't know, like, I, I don't know this. I really like how they progress really how like a modern relationship should be in this very short in this nine episode miniseries 
is you definitely see how like families are portrayed through multiple generations and Mm -hmm. then you hit the final episodes and you realize what's going on with wanda and what she's going through and then you have vision who got suspicious that something weird was going on for i think i think the last three episodes he's like there's something weird going on here and he and he and Wanda aren't seeing eye to eye on something on, on what's going on here. And it's mostly because he knows there's something going on. He also knows that Wanda knows that there's something going on and she's keeping things from him. Mm -hmm. And instead of a large, like emotional blow up that they have with each other, vision investigates what's going on. And when he finds out like what, what the reality of the scenario is instead of, feeling like betrayed or hurt by it he just wonders why wanda does it or why or why wanda's going through what she's going through and they work through it together as opposed to a big emotional reveal or a big emotional blow up at each other it's just no this is my wife i understand her i don't understand necessarily why she chose to do this or what's going on but i'm going to help her through this um, with what's going on. And I think that's just, again, a great way of seeing how you even had in the 50s, Wanda staying at home. Wanda has all these, like, back then, old, like, basically, like, expectations of what women had placed on them. And how, as each decade you go up, that changes until we get to the modern relationship. And I just think that's, like, this series does... I think way more than you see at face value, like, or, or maybe not see at face value, but way more than you were expecting to see at face value and what it comments on and what it accomplishes. Um, uh, and which is also, I think, great for Marvel's first like Disney plus series. This was an awesome, awesome start to everything else that's coming. And really it's, a, it's a recognition of maturity in a couple different ways. It's, mm-hmm. it's maturity from, you know, Marvel's storytelling perspective, but it's also a recognition that viewers have matured at the same time over the course of the, you know, 10 or 11 years that the MCU has existed. Um, but to your point, though, about this journey that we've gone on, and it's, it's just serendipitous that the discussion we've had about just robots in history and now this show being the most recent example of the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. This show honestly sums up almost everything that you and I have just said about how robots have been treated, you know, uh, women's rights, and and how how much that has changed over the course of these discussions, and also the fact that we've got maturity in both Wanda and Vision because of the things you mentioned, the amount of trust in a relationship that has to be there from day one, especially oh, when, yeah, any relationship <laughs> needs trust from day mm-hmm. one. And, and that's real growth, what you just mentioned with Vision, Vision and Wanda coming together at the end of it. It's growth from both characters because, mm-hmm. you know, she is one of the strongest female characters in that universe and that show. Yeah. And instead of Vision stepping up when he, when he finally realizes what the problem was, he doesn't step up and try and solve it or expect no. he can do it on his own is like he goes to take Wanda, like, how could like, how could I help? How can I be supportive? without basically commandeering the scenario. Yeah. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a superhero show and it is one of the healthiest views of relationships you're going to find out there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, I mean, I, I watched it and 
honestly, I feel like as a spouse, I grew from watching that interaction between the two of them. Yeah. And me I as mean, a human being without anything, it did completely change my views on like child rearing. And now <laughs> I am terrified that I will have infants to like teenagers, not teenagers, they don't get to teenagers, infants to like middle schoolers in the span of like three hours. So if it, that's how that's going to work, you just count me as scared as heck. It may not happen that quickly, Joe, but uh, just based on the <laughs> on the experiences that I have, it does feel like a, a time sink that you just don't even realize is going on. <laughs> but you know, I, ultimately, here, guys, we've got this this journey that that pretty much starts with you know, uh, th just the kind of scenario that you'd expect in 1800, right? You know, and as it's gone, we've evolved. And I couldn't think, or like we couldn't think of a better way to end it than with this this refined, you know, polished and just perfectly stated way of, of viewing some of these heavier topics that we've talked mm -hmm. about. Um, and so I think, you know, I, I really hope that we continue down this type of path and not regress into, you know, some of these ridiculous uh, depictions of, of the past that we've you know, pretty much grown up with. Um, but, but I mean, just there's no other way really to look at this uh, or end it rather in a better way than this property. Well, everyone, that was noticeably different from our normal topics to this point. I know I learned a lot about myself and humanity in general, most of which wasn't sexy enough to make me think that robots uh, are really all that much different from an attractiveness standpoint. Yeah, hopefully um, this didn't make you think too differently. Um, sexy robots, personally, not my cup of tea. I'm more into the giant robots that smash other giant robots or giant monsters, but we had to work with sexy robots today. I digress. If you enjoyed this podcast or you were appalled by it in many, many different ways, uh, feel free to contact our producer about those issues and the standards complaints, uh, complaints we are sure to get. For other pop culture topics that aren't quite as sexy, uh, go ahead and join the conversation on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook by searching for at Digital Dissect One or Digital Dissection, a nerd podcast. Please also give us a review no matter where you found us and be sure to tell a friend as these both really help us uh, keep bringing more content and will help keep the lights on for another week. So join us next time as we break down the Assassin's Creed franchise from relative newcomer in 2007 to the annual juggernaut that it is today. And until next time, keep on dissecting. Dissecting.